welcome back to Brailcast, the official podcast of the Brailists Foundation. And coming up this time... I would just approach it on an individual basis, because it's not a one-size-fits-all thing, because everybody wants to do it for different reasons. And maybe when they were taught Braille at school, they didn't really want to do it. And then as an adult, they feel there's a use for it. Everything you ever wanted to know about teaching Braille, but were too scared to ask. Most of us who know Braille were taught it. It sounds like such an obvious statement, so obvious, in fact, that it seems appropriate to conclude that the world has an abundance of Braille teachers, and the methods and techniques that they use are mature, uniform, and understood by everyone working in the field. Presumably, approaches that work well have been iterated over time, those that haven't worked so well have been abandoned, and the entire process has been well documented so that future teachers can learn from the mistakes of the past. The reality is less clearly defined, although certain concepts which have withstood the test of time especially well have become accepted as common knowledge. Pre-Braille skills, for instance, feature regularly in discussions about teaching Braille, as do the differences between learning Braille by touch and by sight and teaching Braille to children and adults. On Tuesday, the 29th of June 2021, we explored this topic in more detail in a live panel discussion with three Braille teachers. Kirsten Roberts is a lifelong Braille user, a qualified teacher of the visually impaired, QTVI, and deputy Braille tutor for the mandatory qualification for teachers of children and young people with visual impairments offered at the University of Birmingham. In addition to her university work, she regularly teaches Braille to both primary and secondary age children. Christine Williams recently retired from Exel Grange Specialist School and Science College in Coventry, where she held the post of lead teacher of the visually impaired. In that capacity, she taught Braille not only to the pupils at Exel Grange, but also peripatetically to pupils of all ages in mainstream schools throughout Warwickshire via the Vision Support Service. Prior to this, she taught French at Exor Grange for a number of years, where Braille also played a significant role. In her retirement, she teaches Braille voluntarily at Coventry Resource Centre for the Blind, predominantly to adults who are losing or in danger of losing their sight. Melanie Pritchard has an extensive background in teaching Braille to adults, either with visual impairments themselves or who are sighted friends or relatives of people with a visual impairment. Most recently, she taught the Braille for Beginners course remotely for the Braillists Foundation. The discussion that follows was moderated by Ben Mustill-Rose and hosted by Dave Williams. So let's start with you, Kirsten. Um, in your experience, who decides who should be taught Braille? I think it really has to be a combination. So if it's for the children, I think it has to be a combination of the child, whether they want to learn, because if they don't, and they're at a certain age, then they're not going to. Also, the parents and the vision support staff around the child. So that could be the QT by the HAB officer or the TA, for example, who might all be involved in, in helping that happen. Parents are really important, certainly for children, because they really need to be there to promote it outside of school. It's not just an in-school thing. It can be, you know, you can do all sorts of things with Braille around the home. 
So that's a really important aspect. And briefly on adults, I think it's it's up to the adult really whether they want to learn it or not. But I'm sure my other two panellists who've got more experience than me will add more to that. So the desire's got to be there. But Christine, I mean, how would you advise a blind or a partially, a partially sighted person particularly? Maybe they're using large print, maybe struggling. What's the threshold at which you would advise uh, that they perhaps start down the road of, of learning Braille? Well, certainly in terms of older children, what we used to do was a functional vision test to get an idea of exactly what the young person could see. And based on the results of that, we then start looking at Braille as the next step. We often found that there was uh, quite a psychological barrier to sort of break down, really, before we could start on the road road to Braille, because this for the parents as much as the, the, the children is a recognition that their, their, their child may well lose their sight. And that's a big thing to come to terms with. So we have to be very careful how we, we went down that. But to have evidence, if you like, from a vision test certainly helped to get a discussion going on that score. With older adults, it's, it's often from they decide, OK, I need to do something about this. And, and they will often make that move in the first instance um but uh, with youngsters it's the motivation definitely to want to do that mel do, do you think that um learning braille is a kind of a reactive intervention rather than you know somebody's eyesight is on a trajectory and maybe it'd be a good idea to learn braille early so that they've got that in the bag for when eyesight changes or do you find that actually it's a reaction to circumstances perhaps after they can't reprint anymore little bit of both I think. Most of the people I have taught have come to me wanting to learn braille because their sight is already too poor to read print. I haven't had many until quite recently with the Braille for Beginners we had a couple who did feel that they wanted to learn before they lost their vision but that in my the people I've taught that's been slightly more unusual. Kirsten when a new student is in a room with you uh, for the first time where do you start? I think you start with either what they know, where they're at, and also what's important to them. So it might be that you just start with their name, for example, so it's something meaningful for them. Or it might be you start with games so they can see, okay, Braille is actually fun. It's not, we're not just sitting here reading and writing and I'm not doing this on my own, you know, out of class when I could be doing something fun in class. And is there an established curriculum and and how rigidly would you follow that? Uh, There isn't really. There are various different attempts. For example, the I am able approach in America, which is a sort of more developed version of a bit like what I just said, where you start with what they can do and what they're interested in doing. So writing the words for their pets or for their parents and things like that. There are lots of um, lots of reading schemes, for example, but not... um, there's not really a set curriculum and I think a lot of QTVIs have tried to reinvent the wheel and I know I certainly do. There's um, With the changeover to UEB, I think there's a lot of sort of tracking things you can do, you know, or do they know this symbol, do they know that letter? But really, you've got to come up with your own stuff to really make it meaningful and fun because that's the important thing if you want them to keep going. And Christine, I mean, did you find any particular schemes worked well or did you roll your own? Personally, I agree with everything that uh, 
Kirsten and, and Mel have, have just said. In terms of teaching the children, the first thing I would say is that before going anywhere near Braille, I would do a lot of tactile work with them, the usual tracking and, and all sorts of games that we, we've mentioned. I would certainly sort of start with that and then build up. With adults, dominoes are a great way of getting them going with identifying raised dots, so on and so forth. In school, well, the established course, really, that I used to use was, was Abby. And that worked really well with a young girl that I can remember teaching. A young girl, she was the right age to identify, if you like, with Abby. Apart from that, it was a bit of a problem. Teaching Abby to a teenage boy, I'm afraid, did not work because the material just wasn't relevant. And so ended up making up a lot of my own resources. And I, I think that's what an awful lot of people do. So, yeah, resources was the problem in, in teaching youngsters, definitely. I use fingerprint, but it's so repetitive. Oh, gosh. And it's Sorry it's grey and I love it, but it doesn't really appeal. And I tend to use it because I work a lot with teenagers, but it doesn't necessarily appeal. It's a bit of its time as well. And there's perhaps nothing... 2020s i have to agree wholeheartedly with that yes definitely. yeah and th those you touched on something there christine pre-braille skills as well so important mm, absolutely. Um, you know tracking fine motor dexterity all really important and, and supported with other activities playing a musical instrument cooking crafts all those things can really help mel any, any contrasts with adults returning to Braille? I know you've you've worked with some people who've perhaps come back to Braille, having let it kind of wither. Is there anything specific you would do there that's not been mentioned? Well, my main thing to do in that instance would be to try and work out why the Braille hadn't worked for them the first time so that I can may, maybe tailor it a little bit not just to encourage and motivate them that this time it's going to work kind of thing, but to make it interesting and try and sort out, say if maybe they didn't carry on with Braille because of tracking difficulties, then uh, we've just all talked about the importance of tracking and tactile skills. So yeah, I would just approach it on an individual basis because sort of it's not a one size fits all thing because everybody wants to do it for different reasons. And maybe when they were taught Braille at school, they didn't really want to do it. And then as an adult, they feel there's a use for it. And probably that's the best time to learn when you know you're going to use it. And a question for all of you, really, would you use different techniques when teaching somebody who's perhaps been blind from birth versus somebody with deteriorating vision? the tactile skills might be different. So you might, you wouldn't necessarily do it differently, but you would certainly approach it differently. I would like um, Kirsten and Mel's opinion on the use of somebody who still has sight. To what extent the, the learner with some sight that might be deteriorating should use that in acquiring braille skills or whether we concentrate totally on the, on the touch aspect. One of my learners, when I first started teaching Braille, the learners had already begun the course and I came in several months into it. And I was horrified because a young man who still had some vision was using his vision and encouraged to use his vision to read the Braille. And of course, as he lost it and then had to learn the tactile skills when he was struggling by this time with grade two Braille, and we almost had to start again. So I think it's really important even if someone can still see, if they think they are going to lose that vision, 
I think, learning tactile as soon as possible, even if it means closing their eyes or, you know, all these other strategies you can use, because it is totally different learning visually mm. to, in a tactile way. I think it's really yeah, important. Absolutely. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I thought I was going to be perhaps on my own there, but actually <laughs> I, I, I thought perhaps I was being a bit harsh, but I do yeah. really believe that. And I think a lot of the situations that we might come across where, we have learners who are coming at it later in life, whether that's just from the second decade of life or whether it's from the seventh decade of life, they will be losing their sight and wow. to rely on it. And then it's almost like a double loss then, isn't it? Kirsten, you said earlier that you felt we could do with something that was a bit more 2020s. How would you characterise the availability of age-appropriate material for teenage Braille learners? I think there's a dearth. I personally really quite like the magazines that RNIB publish and I will take the articles from those and often will type them into print so then I can put them into the appropriate Braille format um, in Duxbury because obviously they'll come in a certain contracted or uncontracted form as it is. And I think the difficulty with teaching probably Braille to anybody is probably that you have to be very personalised because the way you teach the contractions or just the general symbols and letters might vary and it will take a different amount of time for each person and therefore you've got to make sure that the resources are in that particular format for that person so if they don't know a particular symbol then you would need to maybe not use that but it's a question of whether you want to expose them to that and encourage it or whether you want to hold off until they're a bit more confident and then bring it to them. So I think things like that, and I like blogs. A lot of the bloggers that we all know of in the VI world, they write quite long blogs. So taking bits of those is useful. Trying to do things that are really up to date. Uh, finding articles on the internet about VI people like the blind skateboarder, the uh, I've forgotten his name now, Jesse, who climbed the mountain, that sort of thing. Those of us who, who work in the sector who use Braille try quite hard to teach Braille to sighted colleagues as well to help raise awareness. And some of them are just interested. Do any of you have any tips or have any of you taught Braille to a fully sighted person? And, and how did that go? I had a role at Exor of teaching staff Braille. And it was quite marked as to how people took to it. Some of the staff just did not take to Braille at all. It just, for some reason, didn't make any sense to them whatsoever. Others, absolutely fine, you know, took to it like, uh, treated it like learning another language almost, it seemed. But the key to it all was confidence and building up their confidence to learn this new skill, which they perceived to be really difficult for whatever reason, was core to helping them make any progress. And the other, the other difficulty is that you've got a group that are going to work, as Kirsten said, at different rates and in different ways. So it really is quite challenging when you, you're teaching a mixed group of adults uh, because they will reach certain stages at different times. And uh, you can end up sort of doing quite a lot of preparation, to be honest with you, to meet those different needs. During your introduction, Christine, you said you were retired and that you'd been teaching Braille for a number of years. During that time, did your teaching techniques change or evolved? And, and if so, how? I suppose 
in terms of when I was was teaching Braille, the, uh, the big um, new piece of equipment that came along, well, a couple, I suppose, really. Firstly, the Braille note. And then there was a bit of a, a discussion going on as to whether you taught children to get as far as what was then grade two Braille, and then you introduced the Braille note, or whether you start off straight away teaching them with the Braille note. And I left with that sort of being unresolved. And then the other big one was using software to convert text to Braille in a number of different ways. So, I mean, that, that helped an awful lot in terms of resources. But it's still a question of time, of, of using time to make sure that you, you found resources relevant to that child that you would teach. Most of us listening to this are not ourselves teachers, but I mean, the three of you are in, in various ways. So I, I'd like to hear from, from each of you, and I'll start with, with Mel, of resources, sort of quick fire resources that are out there online or available generally that would be useful for anybody who is keen to either start teaching Braille informally, maybe amongst their friends or family, or maybe they even want to take it to the next level and perhaps become a Braille tutor. We're, we're always hearing about there's there's a lack of people teaching Braille. So if somebody wanted to get into that field or wanted to start teaching Braille, what resources, if any, could you recommend Mel? I don't have much knowledge of the online resources although I know they're there and I know they're much better than they used to be but certainly with sighted learners I've always used the primer and found that quite effective I know not everybody likes it but the braille primer I always found good and the difference now is that if you have a sighted learner or somebody who's interested they can using software use their computer rather than have to find a Perkins from somewhere to actually produce the practice braille and simply attach it to an email in the same way as you'd attach a file. And then one of us can sit there and correct it and make comments on it. So you don't always have to be there teaching. So yeah, for sighted learners, I think the primer, but I, I suspect Kirsten has a much more of an idea of the online resources. There are a couple of quite small pamphlets or leaflets which I think have probably been around for a long time but a braille reader in the family and cracking the code are really quite useful little documents for the sort of the real start of braille. I know speaking as a, a vision impaired person myself who, who is a brailist when I was little my parents I think went to um, when I was at special school, they went to the school and learnt Braille. And there's nothing like that now, I don't believe. There may be, obviously, if you're quite local to places like New College, Worcester or Axel or, you know, but I think it's a certainly a lot more limited in terms of the number of special schools and the number of, as you said already, the number of Braille teachers out there. So I guess online, perhaps using YouTube, there is a lot on YouTube now, a lot of things about, you know, how to form the different letters. I really like UEB online. I don't know that it's necessarily suitable for a parent and a child, but it may well work for the parent to get an idea. And it certainly gives them sheets that they can download and, and keep hold of, even if they don't want to actually do the exercises. And that's about five or six years old now, but it, it's a, still a really good program. And actually, you can do that if you use speech technology as well. So if you're vision impaired, but you don't know Braille, but you have speech technology, you can use that as well. Anything to add, Christine? 
That's really good, I have to say. Like Mel, I also use the UEB primer, sort of pick and choose from it. And I'm not a huge fan of it, but uh, it's great sort of resource material to fall back on. The other thing we, we used to use with uh, children in school were the books that Clear Vision produce. And they were a great resource, but of course, they're not aimed at teaching Braille. That's for children who have got at least some knowledge of, of the code. I think the clear vision are brilliant for children and parents, aren't they? Because they can they read are. together yeah. and enjoy both. Yeah, yeah and it, gives, good idea. it gives the parents a real insight into what their child is doing that they might perhaps not have otherwise. Now, when I learned Braille many decades ago, it was with a Perkins and a great big pile of Braille paper that I um, chewed my way through. Christine mentioned Braille Note earlier. What is the role of technology in braille education when's the right time to introduce a braille note taker or a a braille display and what challenges really should everyone be aware of i know you're a great fan of technology kirsten but you'll appreciate its limits how how do you find braille tech and your learners get on i was really interested in what christine said earlier about the ever or never changing question of when do we introduce technology because that's still a question that comes up all the time And I think you can introduce it whenever it feels right. Sometimes it's about introducing it just so they don't have the pressure of of using the Perkins. So in the past, you might have had a Perkins or a Mountbatten, for example, which is slightly easier to write on and still produces Braille on paper. But then if you've got children with other uh, disabilities, uh, physical disabilities or arthritis, for example, or adults even, then using a piece of technology that, is a bit easier on the, with the keyboard on the fingers might be really worthwhile. It's really difficult because for a lot of them, you've got to be able to read the Braille to navigate the devices. But some of them have got screens and so that might help. Usually most of them speak, so that's also useful. And I quite often encourage my students to use both at first and then kind of move on to what they prefer. But I don't think there is a, an age limit. I just think it's it's the same with all Braille questions of what is right for that student. And again, it might be that it's not right all the time, but it might be right in just their English lessons or just their intervention lessons with the QTVI, or it might be just once a week as, a, as something they can play a game on, but then they can move on to developing those skills. Christine, you'll have witnessed quite a few Braille technology changes in your career. Did it make Braille more or less difficult to teach? Well, both I and the student were were mastering the technology at the same time, because the thing about a Braille note is you've got to learn how to use that as well as learn the Braille that goes with it. So on the one hand, I mean, it it helped the relationship between me and the child or the student, I have to say, and, and we could have a bit of fun doing it. But uh, yeah, for me, it was a challenge, I'll be honest with you. The adults that I teach now, they, because Braille notes cost you know, a lot of money, don't they? We've got a finance implication here. They still use the Perkins, but they do seem so sort of, you know, well, old fashioned, if you like, to be honest, especially for little fingers. So I think we, we've gone beyond that for, for small children, definitely. I wanted to kind of move on to the question of of advocacy. You know, we heard earlier that there isn't really a, a kind of a formal Braille 
curriculum as such, but does that curriculum, as well as teaching the Braille code and reading techniques, also need to include some some advocacy skills? I found going out into university and employment that I, uh, you know, had to speak up if I wanted Braille. It didn't just happen automatically, as, as it may do, you know, particularly in a, in a specialist um, school. Any thoughts around that panel? I think with all the students, whether they're Brailleists or whether they're low vision whether they're multidisability with VI, I think advocacy is a massive part of what we have to do now. The other world isn't going to come to them. Like you said, it's they're going to have to ask for things, demand it, uh, know how to be polite about it, how to explain why they need it, to make people understand that sort of thing. So yes, it does come as part of it, but I think it comes as the more holistic package of the role of the QTVI or the Braille teacher as well to help that path. Yes, yeah, you, from the youngsters' point of view, they're asking them to be quite sort of assertive sometimes, really, in, in sort of, you know, asking for these things. And I'm sure some youngsters find that a lot more difficult than others, mm-hmm. in, depending on the situation that uh, they're in. But, yeah, my, my experience as a QTVI was that uh, unless somebody raised the issue, the child or parent or QTVI or um, another adult, then the Braille got sort of pushed to one side. That tended to happen. Not always, but it did tend to happen. Uh, we're going to come to uh, Kowal in a moment or two, and um, but there's been some great discussion going on in the chat, and we've uh, got a question from Andrew. Uh, Andrew has uh, submitted a couple of comments, actually. He uh, is uh, saying that he's a good fan of the Orbit Reader and similar displays because of their uh, top quality braille, very easy for people who are maybe struggling with sensitivity issues. But his question is uh, around how to encourage learners who are maybe a little bit reluctant. So he works at a centre where learning braille is a requirement, but um, perhaps some of his students maybe aren't so keen to progress down that route just yet. Yes, there were one or two cases where there was reluctance. Now, this was partly perhaps because in the special school, we had a system of taking the children for their Braille lesson out of, say, their maths or their English lesson or whatever fitted in with the curriculum. So sometimes that was the frustration. They were missing the lesson with everybody else and had to come and do their Braille. Generally, I'm, I'm thinking of one child, my aim was to make it as much fun as possible and to come up with as many sort of you know different kinds of, of activities turning things into a game and maybe sort of having a sort of little bit of a laugh about things and keeping the atmosphere fairly light and uh, trying to sort of cajole a child on that basis and basically just chip away lots and lots of praise raising confidence getting them to think, you know, they're doing something really sort of special here, something different, and then sharing what they've done with their classmates. That also worked quite well sometimes, but it was often quite a slow process and not one to be hurried. Any reluctant adults, Mel? I haven't really taught many adults with using technology. So the only ones I can really think of are our most recent ones, and many of them are really enjoying products like the Orbit for reasons as much as anything for tracking because of course older people who struggle with tracking if they can run to a braille device and it's all about confidence as well as Christine says in the product you're using. Uh, I think there are a lot of good reasons and I think if anything technology has made braille even more popular 
generally with certainly with adults like learning anything new there are going to be times when it gets hard and and you just want to pack it in you know how do you how do you keep people motivated I felt when I've been teaching adults certainly one of the first questions I ask people is why are you why are you learning braille why do you want to learn braille and it always sounds really mean and cruel but actually with any kind of teaching forget braille but any teaching you've got to want to do it and you've got to have a good reason for doing it so if they have a good focus and they've got something good that's going to happen at the end of it it keeps them going it might only be to label stuff in their cupboards Mm. or it might be to read war and peace but whatever it is it's unique to that person and if you can tap into that that was my thoughts. <laughs> yeah. Well, great discussion still going on in the chat. We've got uh, quite a few hands up now. So we're going to come to Koal now. And then after you, we're going to come to Anne Wilkins. But Koal, you are good to go. Um, hi, I just wanted to explain my experience to you. I'm no teacher. I was a transcriber for 23 years. And once I left, I didn't know what else to do. So then, first of all, I got a job in the Bank of England and I got asked to teach someone Braille. So I did that for a bit and he didn't like it. So then I thought, well, you know, what else am I going to do? And then I got another job teaching Braille to children. And um, listening to what you were all saying made me think, yes, I was going along the, the same lines as you, you know, making it fun. And at the end of it all, they got back to me saying that they were going to cut the funding. And so I wonder what you thought. Have you encountered that, Kirsten? You're, you're kind of on the front line with teaching youngsters Braille. Not within education, but I can well understand the funding argument and it very much disappoints me, but I'm sure it's probably been heard many times before. These things tend to go in cycles, so they'll get rid of their Braille teachers or whatever and then five, ten years later they'll be like, oh, this is what we really need. And then they employ more. Unfortunately, that doesn't help the children in the 10 year interim or even the adults in terms of a social care, because a lot of the adult teaching comes through payments from social care and social worker support to find a teacher, to keep a teacher and to pay for it through personalised budgets, etc. And, you know, if those change or those drop off, then the Braille teaching will probably be one of the first things to go. So. Yeah, funding is really important, but as a teacher, you have no control over it. We're going to come to Anne Wilkins next. And uh, after Anne, we're going to come to Judith. Anne, you are now unmuted. Right, thank you. I'm an experienced Brailleist and I've always used Braille. Um, my question was mainly that um, I have taught Braille to adults and I'm currently teaching Braille music to a teenager in Wales who's doing very well and I think the same problems of resources apply as much to braille music as they do to uh, literary braille because there is work ongoing regarding braille music to get more resources but they don't update very quickly I find but I'm wondering really how to keep people motivated. I think the question has slightly been answered by the panel, but I found that people say, oh, it's difficult and and I don't want to keep on and that sort of comment. And I wondered what's the best way, but you, you have covered that really with um, mentioning games and other resources, which um, I haven't actually used, but I have 
got people to try to write a little story about you know, the previous week or something that they're interested in. And I'm what, also... what motivated me, Anne, you mentioned Braille music there. And, yeah. um, you know, I was taught Braille music years ago and kind of put it down for quite a long time. And then during lockdown, I wanted to improve at the piano and I didn't really want to learn any classical pieces. And the thing that really motivated me was I found um, a book of jazz braille music and then suddenly there was all these pieces that I wanted to learn to play you know and so so it's a bit like learning to read generally you know if you've got content that you're actually interested in you know for my son who is sighted we got him books about football and space and dinosaurs and trains and stuff that he was interested in and and that often seems to be the carrot I think. I think um, Anne's raised a really important point about braille music actually that you're average QTVI wouldn't teach braille music because it's a very acquired skill and most sighted people don't know braille music. I know I learned it like you Dave at school then subsequently forgot it after I finished my music GCSE and then had to reteach myself when I was trying to teach a child in preparation for his music GCSE a couple of years ago. Still can't quite get to grips with it and get it back in my head. I don't know where it's gone. But that's a really, a really important point. I think that's an area that's possibly missing from Braille teaching. I think I saw that James Bowden was here and he, he will be a, a wizard Braille music. So he might have some thoughts. So uh, it looks like James does have uh, something to contribute. So what we'll do is we'll, uh, we'll bring James in for a final point on this question. And then after James, we'll go to Judith. So regarding music, And notice I didn't say Braille music, I just said music. Many sighted people can't read music. So if they can't read print music, they've got very little chance of teaching Braille music. So it's, it's, it's a double thing there. However, there are some good schemes to kind of introduce print music i know um i think it's harry cox who's a qtvi london way is doing some great stuff there like braille itself braille music is not difficult it just requires effort and i think all the teachers i hope may agree the more you do it the easier it gets if the rnib they have a new system now with the library where you can request something and have it sent to you and then you dispose of it rather than sending it back is that the same with braille music because that could make it more more available and that might really help you Anne yes I think you can request stuff from the library I don't know how much is yet up and running but certainly it is the intention thank you James Uh, we're going to come to Judith next and after Judith we're going to come to George Bell Uh, hey Judith you are good to go I was concerned to hear that there's not very much sort of suitable material for teaching teenagers. And I'm wondering whose responsibility is that? You know, should we be campaigning for the RNIB to be producing some? Should we be looking to independent producers to try and come up with something? Because surely this isn't rocket science. You know, it should be possible to produce something for teenagers. The, I'm going to get this wrong, Dave, view. Oh, yes, the Vision Impaired Education Workforce. Yeah, that's an association for everybody who works in the education of VI children and and young adults. They are currently undertaking a massive project whereby a lot of these sorts of things are trying to be kind of sorted out. 
and there's a lot of resource sharing going on. I think that is due to end in November. So we may see something coming out of that. And that could be a way forward. I know certainly lots of people are very desperate, as you say, Judith, to get something that is more appropriate. And equally, as I think it was Christine raised earlier, you know, teaching Abby to a teenage boy, for example, or a young boy even, is not so great. So, and we've also got to think about what we get now, a lot of children who have English as their second language, as an additional language, so they didn't learn it first. I've spent quite a lot of my career teaching students like that, and we need to make resources accessible to them as well and available to them to learn Braille. in English so there's a lot of things that need doing it's going to take a lot of time but I think I do think view in collaboration with the University of Birmingham Victor I believe are considering these sorts of things but how quickly it will come on board I don't know but I totally agree with you and I I know the other panelists do as well. Can I just add there that I'd like to think that the youngsters themselves are asked for the sorts of things that they would like to have produced in very general terms for these these resources and their their opinions sought as well as everybody else making the decisions I'm sure they will have thought of that but I would have thought so yes but it might be worth reiterating (laughs) might it yeah yeah Uh, James has his hand raised again so we'll just uh, go to James briefly and then we'll go to George hey James so two points and absolutely agree we need age-appropriate and relevant material, that probably means you're on a treadmill because what's relevant now will be different in five years, 10 years, 15 years' time. So that probably means you'll need to produce new books, new courses all the time. That probably needs to be factored in. Language changes, interest changes, what's current affairs changes. The other interesting thing about the courses like the Abbey books, the fingerprint and the other reading courses from the RNIB is they only actually use fully contracted Braille. Now, that sounds completely odd when you're teaching Braille. But what they do is they only use vocabulary which uses the signs which have been taught. So you can't have the word she until you've introduce the sh sign you can't have the word through until you've done dot five signs which makes things quite difficult at the early stages and i wonder what you good teachers think about that is that a sensible approach or do you think the language should be completely free and then the student has to learn the word up to possibly four different ways before it's settled for my teaching I have found that an excellent approach James and I wouldn't want to teach someone to write out the word through and then in chapter whatever it is and you're not you're going to know that uh, suddenly to say it's dot five th sign I think that is really confusing for a learner while I take the point about resources and everything else and I know George is going to pop on in a minute and he'll tell us that Duxbury can actually produce braille with some signs in and some not in which is brilliant but when you're trying to teach it I like the fingerprint approach actually I'm going to upset the apple cart because I totally disagree (laughs) I much prefer the the Duxbury that as we say I'm sure George is going to talk about it way of doing it where you can put in the signs you can set it to a specific level so that the child can be at that level you can also now do this on braille notes for example as well so the braille note 
internal kind of braille table can be set at a specific level so the whole of the all the menus and everything can be put to that level that the child's at but I think if we're thinking longevity for both for resource as James was saying then we need to take that approach but also the child is going to also need to use technology and so be able to touch type and be able to spell and one of the things that VI children are often quite poor spellers not always but quite often and I know I was taught to spell both ways and I'm sure most brainless are taught that but I don't see any reason why they can't learn both ways or however many different ways it is whether it is four ways yes they have a lot to take in in that way but it's over a longer period of time and also they have a lot to take in in life when you're using technology you have to learn how to do lots of different things in different ways so in a way it's just a good start let's bring george in they think they know what you're going to say george are they right I think uh, most of what I was going to say has been covered, but uh, certainly this question of what is the student interested in is a very important one because that way you can obtain interesting material from all over the place at the moment. Um, If they're interested in spaceships or warships or shopping or anything, you can obtain material which you can then use at the appropriate level that you're uh, teaching up to is is one thing. The other thing is, at the moment, Duxbury does handle certainly the UK courses of um, the UEB Braille and Easy Steps, if you're using that for the youngsters, UK UEB Fingerprint for more adult types, and the UEB Takeoff Series. So, Those are three will add more if the demand is there. But that certainly seems the beauty of that is if you've got something like fingerprint, you can spend weeks at a particular level until the student's comfortable before you move on to the next one, in addition to the course material that you've got. So I'll close that down now and let uh, Jeff, uh, I'm sure he's got something valuable to say as well. Great. Okay, a couple of quick points, really. Firstly, I'd like to thank the three of you for your non-dogmatic approach. That's absolutely great. My personal experience, what's done a great disservice to Braille and other things where difference is required, whether it be BSL or Braille, is the concept of normalisation. It's thought that everyone should be the same. That's why Braille's often been shouted down in the past, because it's different. And why should blind people be different, even though difference can be empowerment? And my last point is, are you saying to us that we should advocate and see what we can do to get a reading scheme for or age-appropriate materials and where do we start you know there are plenty of reading schemes for sighted children seems to me a gross injustice that there aren't similar things to blind people the reading schemes that are available to sighted people are available to braillists as well because they're available on rnib bookshare it's just that they are not specific to teaching braille contractions in a specific Mm. way like the braille reading schemes would do as James alluded to earlier so no I wouldn't be advocating at this point as a collaborative for reading schemes because I think if you're a good teacher you can use those to teach the braille in the way that you need to and that adds to the interest and adds linking to your point of being different actually helps keep 
students doing the same things, even if they're reading it in Braille, they're still doing the same things. And as I said earlier, I think there are things on stream anyway in terms of newer reading schemes and things. And in terms of the difference, that's a really interesting point. That's a lot of the reason why a lot of parents and a lot of children do not want to learn Braille because they don't want to feel different or don't want to seem different, don't want to look different. And I think it's important actually to get over that and to encourage them that, yes, they are reading a different way, but we're not talking a different language. We're not talking a different code. We're just talking a different use of fingers instead of eyes. And um, yes, there is a, a really snazzy shorthand. And I tend to encourage it by a display in my classroom whereby I've talked to a lot of blind friends and said, what do you use Braille for? And things like, I use it for reading in the dark when my parents don't know I'm Mm -hmm. still awake or I use it for writing down phone numbers really quickly so encouraging that sort of thing so why is braille used in the real world and then Holly Scott Gardner who is a a member of this group as well is a massive advocate for that and I've taken a lot of ideas from from what she said as well over the last few years because I think it's really important how can we make braille 21st century yes Louis Braille was amazing he's fantastic and we can teach all of that we can teach the history but how can we make it now? Any other comments? Technology uh, makes that more attractive as well, because a lot of younger yes. people do like technology. And yes. so it's not like having to carry huge big books around as we used to 50 years ago. And I think that is helping to yes. a, a bit of a rebirth almost for Braille. You know, people are finding it more interesting because they can use it on their iPhone and such. Mm. I think that is really helping. That's true. I've written a paper on that exact thing. Okay, good. (laughs) And um, I think uh, if we can, just a real uh, quick fire response from all the panel. Great question from the chat from John. Why do the panel think that so many people are ready to dismiss Braille today and say that it is no longer relevant? What I hear quite a lot is, oh, you don't need Braille because you've got audiobooks, technology and whatnot. So why do you need braille and what would your response to that um if you don't learn braille then for reading audiobooks it's secondhand isn't it so in order to interact with the written word you need to be able to do it for yourself make up your own mind and that's where the braille comes in and not rely on somebody else's interpretation find your own voice rather than that of of an actor or a synthesizer Uh, mel i would that would be more or less what i would say so i won't take up the time saying it again Kirsten? I would say, um, how are you going to know what medicines and medications you have got in your hand if you can't read the Braille label? Kirsten Roberts concluding a live panel discussion on teaching Braille recorded on Tuesday the 29th of June 2021. The other panellists were Christine Williams and Melanie Pritchard. The session was moderated by Ben Mustill-Rose and hosted by Dave Williams. There were a number of resources mentioned in this episode and you can find information about all of them in the show notes. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Braillecast, the official podcast of the Braillists Foundation. You can find more Braille-related content by subscribing to Braillecast, all one word, in your podcast client of choice. Or listening to Braillecast, connecting the dots for Braillists everywhere on your smart speaker. You can also find past episodes on our website at braillecast.com. 
If you have comments on the podcast or suggestions of topics or guests for future episodes, we'd love to hear from you. Please email help at braylists.org. You can also find the Braylists on Twitter at Braylists or on Facebook, facebook.com slash Foundation. Finally, if you like what you've heard, spread the word. New listeners are always welcome. So if you know other people who are interested in Braille, please tell them where to find us. In the meantime, on behalf of everyone at the Braillists, thanks for listening and bye for now. The costs of producing this episode were defrayed by a grant from the Activate Fund of the Winston Churchill Memorial Trust. For more information, visit wcmt.org.uk.